Welcome back to Digital Health 101. Today we're talking about virtual reality. What is virtual reality? Why is it going to be such a powerful tool in medicine? To answer that question, we've asked Justin Barad, who's the CEO of OsoVR, to come talk to us about this technology, how it's applied in healthcare, and where he thinks it's going to be going. Justin, welcome to Digital Health 101. So glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. This is great. Justin Barad, you have become quite the famous person, the doctor synonymous with the word virtual reality. How'd you start this journey? Like you were a pediatric orthopedic doctor, and now you're a technological entrepreneur. Tell us more about that journey. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really been a wild ride and, and kind of a, a lifetime journey. And I know that some of the listeners are seeking to create their own careers in innovation and entrepreneurship within healthcare. And I do really think that innovation and invention, it can strike you at any time, but at the same time, it is a discipline and a methodology and something that you can practice over a lifetime. And I'd love to share my story a little bit and kind of let you know what I'm talking about. So when I was growing up, I was really passionate about video games. I was amateur game developer, making mods for games. I had a game credit with Activision, which I had the opportunity to work at. And I started getting interested in healthcare because I had a family member who got very ill. And I just suddenly one day kind of woke up with this idea of like, is there a way to use software and technology, not necessarily for entertainment, but to help people with medical problems? And ultimately that led me to pivot from computer science and biomedical engineering, which I studied at Cal. And in my mind, as I was studying bioengineering, I had this goal that I was going to invent technology. I wanted to create something that would help people. And as I was nearing graduation, I didn't really actually know how to start doing that. And so I was seeking out advice and I was talking to a mentor of mine and he told me something that, that sticks with me to this day. And this is how I try to approach any problem I'm trying to solve, where he said that if you want to invent something, you need to understand the problem you're trying to solve first. And he thought that the best way to understand medical problems was to be a doctor. So in retrospect, I may have taken his advice a little too literally and I ended up going to medical school at UCLA, as you know, and then did my orthopedic surgery residency there. And then I did my fellowship in pediatric orthopedics at Boston Children's Hospital. And I was immersed in all sorts of problems every day. But the one problem that really stuck out to me was how we train and assess our healthcare providers with their technical skills or, or on procedures. And what I was noticing, you know, not to go too in depth, but, you know, I'd be training in these cases at these top hospitals. And sometimes people would be like, hey, Justin, like, you know, go scrub out and figure out what to do. Go like, go to the computer and basically Google what to do. Or like, you turn around, you'd be in the surgery once again at a top hospital and you'd be asking, you know, a medical device sales rep straight out of college, like, hey, what do we do here? Right. I, I know we've all been in that situation. This is crazy. Like what's going on here? And so what I began to understand the dynamic behind this was really three things. And, and now a fourth thing with the addition of COVID, which is one is there's just too much to learn. So in a way, we're victims of our own success. Accelerating medical knowledge and technological progress is expanding the library at an accelerating pace of what we as surgeons and physicians are just expected to know how to do on demand. So I always tell this story. This is like a very extreme example, but I was eating lunch in residency when my team was paged by the zoo to urgently drive over and operate on a gorilla who had a subtrochanteric femur fracture. And like, you know, I was talking to my attending at the time. I'm like, are we doing this? He's like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so like, you know, we're all really excited, but we're like, why are they calling us? Are we, are we expected to know how to do this? And, you know, we're Googling if gorillas have, have bones or anything like that. And everything went great. But in a way, we're all dealing with a gorilla-like situation every single day, right? Like how often are we 
seeing something for the first time or something that we don't see too often and we don't really have a great way to prepare and we're being spread thinner and thinner all the time. It's a beautiful way to state the problem statement. And while you're speaking, flashing across my memory was a picture of that gorilla on the operating table that I've seen you present at a conference. <laughs> it's like I was quite a big animal and uh, over a very small table. So you chose to solve it using virtual reality. And our talk today is going to be around defining and explaining what virtual reality is for our audience. So let's start with that, that terminology, virtual reality. What does that mean? Yeah, so this is like really interesting because virtual reality is basically in a way tricking your brain that the environment around you is completely replaced by something else. So in the modern sense, virtual reality is describing what is called a virtual reality head-mounted display or an HMD. So most people at this point have tried this with the, you know, there was a stint in the 90s where people tried to make this technology and just did not work. It was not ready, but more recently in sort of the mid-2010s, the Oculus Rift Kickstarter came out and just completely revolutionized this space. And so now it's pretty, and then, you know, there are iterations with Samsung Gear and Google Cardboard where may, many people try this technology, but it's really maturing now, especially with the recent release of the Oculus Quest, and you're seeing millions and millions of VR headsets now becoming available to people. And so what it is, is you put the headset on your head and your vision is completely replaced with a stereoscopic view and it tracks your head so you can look around this virtual environment and also use your hands and interact with the virtual world. Now, what's interesting about this, if you're really interested in VR in the setting of healthcare and you're trying to be like, well, what's the data behind it? What's the literature? Is that there is a form of simulation like what was considered virtual like simulators, basically, or virtual surgery that was called virtual reality very commonly for like the past maybe 10 to 20 years. So you're gonna see all these papers that describe the effectiveness or a study of virtual reality, but it is not actually virtual reality in the modern sense. And that, that's really just a computer-based simulation where you're not using a head-mounted display that's completely replacing your perception of the world around you. So I think for the scientists and physicians out there, it's really important to point out that there is this discrepancy of nomenclature in the literature. And that was a 2D-based experience, correct? Yeah, and these things still exist and they're very sophisticated and valuable in their own way, but you know, oftentimes this form of simulation is, you know, a very large kind of physical structure with tools that you can grab and like maybe a screen that would represent what you'd see in laparoscopy or, you know, arthroscopy or interventional cardiology, like a fluoro output. But you're not immersed in a different world. And, you know, it comes with a variety of disadvantages, but also comes with uh, some advantages as well. And the concept, though, also goes back to things like flight simulators, right? Where people actually built entire airplanes or segments of airplanes and put pilots in them and had them experience what it'd be like to go through turbulence and what have you. But now taking that experience and putting it in on a much more accessible format. Yeah, definitely. Um, certainly, especially in my world, you know, we draw a lot of inspiration from aviation and how they utilize simulation so effectively. But you could think of it, you know, what flight simulators have done a really great job of is, is really tricking the brain and fully immersing yourself in these worlds. But now you have a $300 headset that can do it that's lighter and smaller than a textbook. That's right. <laughs> a textbook, exactly, which nobody ever reads because they're just too dense. So let's go down that path of what tricking the brain allows you to do. It allows you to visit and experience an environment that you wouldn't otherwise have access to but under a control situation. So how does that enable us to get into situations like education or training? That's a really good question. I think you know there's data that shows that if you train in the same environment that you'll be performing in, that you are more likely to have higher level of retention of that information and higher efficiency in terms of 
the skill transfer itself. So that's an important element that, you know, often the environments that we train in as providers are like a resident workroom or a simulation lab. Like you can't actually go to an operating room most times unless you're operating on a patient, which is great, but not something that, not a situation where you want to be quote unquote practicing. Another thing is that if you can actually trick the brain into thinking that something is real, it's a very natural form of learning, right? You're just doing what you're going to do instead of trying to make multiple executive interpretations of, of what you're seeing. Like if you're reading something in a book, you need to read the words, translate those words into an image in your head and kind of imagine what that would mean in a real person as accurately as you can. And there are just multiple levels and hoops you need to jump through to translate that book into real world action. We're here you're firing all the same circuits and neurons that you would do when you're actually performing the activity and creating those feedback loops in a way that is much more efficient and natural and intuitive. And that requires you to interface with the environment you're looking at. So let's talk a little bit about how that happens. The technology enables me to move an object inside a virtual reality environment. Yeah, they're really sort of... Um, speaking of like modern VR, and I'm mainly going to be referring to the Oculus Quest or Quest 2 here, which... Once again, for the listeners, it's there are really three components. There's a headset, which is completely wireless and no longer needs a computer to run anymore. And then two controllers you hold in your hand that have cutaneous haptic feedback built in. So in terms of interacting with the environment, the most common way right now is to utilize these controllers, which are tracked by the headset. And it's, it's very intuitive where you can kind of reach out, you can pick up an object. There are extra buttons if you need that. And you know, if you were to like drill into a leg, like in our simulation, you you can feel the density of the bone, you can feel the intramedullary canal on the other side. So it's pretty sophisticated. And there's also, this is, might be a little too much detail, but um, there's an ergonomic kind of component where having something in the palm of your hand when you're in virtual reality and you're holding something, but something that doesn't actually exist, it feels much better to users. Now, what's really exciting and interesting is now these headsets just off the shelf, you could put the controllers down on the ground and the headsets will fully track your hand because they're really sophisticated optical and depth cameras on these headsets. So you can actually have all of your fingers and your hand in there and you could talk to people in sign language and things like that if you needed to. What's interesting is that, that technology is very sophisticated in terms of the, love, the ability to track your hands, but it, it's still a little bit early in its iteration, but it's fun to experiment with. It's a little, you know, you were discussing lag before the call. There is some lag and it gives a sensation of being a little bit drunk. There's no haptic feedback for that currently. And you also don't have the benefit of something in your hand. And it can also be a bit clumsy. It's less predictable in terms of your performance in the virtual environment. So I see down the road, I think we'll probably see something like a hybrid solution where you already see some companies like uh, Valve with what's called the Knuckles controllers, where you have a controller in your hand, it provides haptic feedback, but you can track all of the fingers individually and, and get a lot more fine motor control in the virtual environment. So it, but it's really exciting seeing how rapidly the input into VR has progressed over the past few years. And once again, this is something you can buy for $300 off of Amazon and immediately start experimenting with. It's, it's really pretty interesting. Right. And I just want to just clarify a little bit about this idea of the way the device knows where your hands are in space. It literally has, I don't know if it's radar based or, or if it's a camera vision based, but it, it maps or creates a virtual map of your hands is what you're referring to that then translates into the virtual world in the same space it would be if they were actually your hands. So isn't that right? It's crazy. It basically scans your hands and then yeah. in your space, in your visual space in this virtual world, you can interface with the with whatever it is you're interfacing within that world. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's an accurate description. I believe there are some form of, of depth uh, camera and it's the same cameras that are used to track the controllers, but it's like the sheer amount of technology and uh, what these headsets can do is unbelievable when you start digging into it. Like, I mean, it's just mind blowing what we've been able to accomplish and, and Facebook and Oculus specifically. But I think what's crazier to me is like when you think about everything these things can do. And then once again, these are $300 for consumers. Like the price point is really also blows my mind that this is such an accessible technology that is also so sophisticated. And people are often like, what's next? What's coming down the line? And I often try and point out that, you know, VR is like extremely mature at this point and just unbelievably sophisticated. And you just need to like get it and try it to really see just, you know, just a small sampling of what it can do. And most people are haven't realized that it's progressed so quickly if they had tried it in the past with like, say, a Google Cardboard. Right. Or if they try with an, an, oh, some of the older versions made people feel actually carsick, right? Because there was this lag between what you saw and what you perceived. Yeah, that was, that was a huge issue with early VR. And there were a lot of kind of contributing factors. I won't get into all the details. Part of it is just, you know, best practices in VR design, which now we know a lot about. And some of it was based on the hardware itself and, and some of the software that drove the VR experience. I think now that we're in this sort of next generation of VR, it has largely gone away. That being said, you know, the big challenge of sort of this new generation of VR is around the performance of the headsets. They're, they're very sophisticated, but you have to keep in mind that we're going from a generation of VR that was powered by these like super high powered graphics cards in computers, like either laptops or desktops. And now we're running on a mobile phone processor. So we've definitely mm -hmm. taken a step back from a processing power standpoint. And so in order to deliver a smooth experience, you actually need a pretty sophisticated kind of platform that can deliver that. And that's kind of part of what our company has been able to accomplish by bringing experts from like Apple and Industrial Light and Magic and Microsoft and other leading studios to use the same techniques they use on like Star Wars video games or Marvel movies to get things that look very anatomically detailed in VR, but that still run very smoothly because getting things to run smoothly are what make VR experiences very comfortable for people and not feel that sensation of VR sickness, which once again is, is much less of a thing now, but if the application is not created correctly, it can still be an issue. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the application of virtual reality modules within healthcare. What would you say the most common or most successful applications have been to date of this technology within the healthcare space? For virtual reality specifically, I think, you know, both in and beyond healthcare, I think training and as assessment is really the killer app. You're just seeing it, especially with the pandemic, an explosion of these really interesting companies like um, outside healthcare, you see something like Striver, which, you know, trains every single employee at Walmart. And you see, I think it's called like Interplay Learning, uh, which trains like plumbers and other vocational uh, jobs. And so, you know, within healthcare, there's also VR. And uh, this is for the, the reasons I highlighted, you know, what I saw firsthand is like what I saw as an existential challenge, which was just turbocharged by the pandemic. Now, you know, whether you're in training, you know, you're seeing case volume go down and a lot of residents were out sick or were intentionally held back as backup as we we're kind of going through all of this. And then post-training, as you know better than anyone, one of the main ways that we kind of get ongoing education outside of our daily practice is large-scale conferences and courses, which, you know, are, are not happening really at all right now. And we don't really know what the future looks like. So there's really was an accelerating need for some way to train people remotely without needing to be physically together and without having access necessarily to patients, cadavers, or equipment. And so, you know, it's great that I was able to combine my passion for gaming and VR and healthcare and, and found this company. But 
you know, over the past year, we've seen just an explosion in the utilization of the technology all around the world. Let's talk about some of the results that you've seen. You deploy one of your technologies across a platform. What are you seeing as a result? Well, I think we're seeing that the technology is working from a variety of angles. One is, you know, one of the challenges with digital transformation and distance education is engagement. And what we're seeing is a steady rise in the utilization of OSO VR and the engagement that platform. We're training thousands of surgeons a month in a number of different countries, I think 20 the last time I checked. The other thing that's important is, does the technology actually work? Does it lead to skill transfer? Is it just like a fun thing for people to do? So that's something that we've done or had the technology evaluated by independent sites. So uh, a study at UCLA showed a 230% increase in GRS scores or global rating skill scores with the utilization of OSO VR. A study at University of Illinois Chicago showed a 306% improvement in the ability to perform a procedure independently. So it went from 25 to 78% with the utilization of OSO VR. We have some data being submitted for publication right now um, from a community hospital in California that shows that training in OSO VR is more efficient. So you don't need to train as much in order to get more value. The procedure time is like you're much faster. The number of redirections went down by 60%, once again, increase in GRS scales. And I think what was most interesting to me, we did a, a motion analysis study. Some people are like, well, you know, how realistic is it what you're doing in there in OSO? Like, you know, is it a video game? And I don't, I'm, I'm a surgeon first. I don't pretend to say this is 100% realistic, but it does lead to real world skill transfer. And so what we did was a motion analysis study of actually putting motion trackers on residents doing a procedure and then on the same residents training in OSO. And what we found is that the difference is almost imperceptible between the two things. So in terms of the actual motion and how you're moving in your body is the fidelity is quite high between the platforms. That's a remarkable result. Uh, and I hadn't seen that data. So that's fantastic to hear. Now, look, there's other applications of VR behind surgical training. People are using it for pain management and depression. And do you want to touch a little bit on what you've seen in other areas? Yeah, I mean, I think VR in healthcare has been pretty exciting. I mean, even before this kind of recent acceleration and adoption, people would come to me and be like, oh, like you can use VR for surgical training. We use it at my hospital for X or for Y. And so there are a lot of really interesting applications. I think you know, probably the main patient facing one is around sort of pain and anxiety management, you know, related to procedures or like wound changes and, and things like that. There's a company Applied VR that's doing like a lot of great work in that space. You're seeing a fair amount of activity in the rehab space. So there are a number of companies that will allow you to do a kind of PT and VR and they have games and things that are, you know, really interactive and stimulating and get people to sort of move more than they might do and, and not require necessarily a physical therapist. But what's really cool about these platforms is you're measuring how people are doing. So like if you're doing PT, you can actually measure someone's kind of like shoulder forward elevation, right? Like how high they can reach to, you know, reach some like ball in the air or something like that. So it's not only more fun, more engaging, more remote, but you're getting real patient data where you can track progress and outcomes and, and intervene if necessary. There's a lot in sort of the psychiatric space in terms of dealing with phobias and anxiety. That's really interesting. There's, there's some stuff in the opto space of like, you know, treating some congenital disorders and eye movement disorders with VR, which I find really fascinating. Um, there is a fair amount of interest in sort of visualization and where you can kind of load CT scans and MRIs in VR and, and kind of uh, take a look at those, review those before or after a case, and which is a step up from sort of the one and a half D, as they say, reconstruct or 2.5 D reconstructions that we often deal with. So I could go on and on, but you're seeing that the platform itself is broadly applicable. And 
I do anticipate that most physicians are just going to have a VR headset over the next few years. Um, totally agree. Uh, I'm really enjoying working with a small company here this, coming out of UCSF that actually creates holograms that we can also use in both a VR headset or an AR environment, which is, is a, the augmented reality environment, which is a crossover that we'll maybe come to in another talk. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were to come across a clinic that says, you know, we'd love to, to work with also VR or any other VR platform, and we'd like to implement VR training, is there, are there any, any advice for having now deployed so, so frequently, so many places that you'd suggest people consider before implementing a technology like virtual reality? I think, yeah, I mean, I think this is generally for people that want to work with technology in general, but I think we're all really used to just sort of like, hey, like, you know, you just, I'm going to sign up for this thing, it's going to work instantly. But I think in healthcare, it's really everything, it takes a village and everything's a partnership. And it really, you know, part of the equation is the technology, but the other part is like having a plan to use it. And how are you going to demonstrate that this technology is successful? Or what do you even really want to do with it? And do you have realistic expectations of what it is and, and what it isn't? And I, I think understanding those things is important, like, you know, what you're really trying to, to get out of it. And if you are, if this is like a, a value generating activity, either for, you know, patient outcomes or, you know, more related to revenue or costs, like having a good understanding of, of what your goal is, both in terms of like, if you're doing some sort of small test or pilot or long-term. And I, I think coming in with that in mind, like some kind of strong vision and, and understanding, you're likely to be a lot more successful than what often happens is people bring new and interesting technologies into a hospital, but they don't really know what they want to do with it. And they don't, they may not have enough time set aside to really champion it in the organization. And I, I see very frequently that, you know, these things kind of can stagnate and counterintuitively, like, you know, with these companies that sign these early deals and these pilots and are so excited about it, that if there's not this engagement on the other side, they not only die on the vine, but there's a, a negative taste in everyone's mouth that it didn't work or it wasn't that great when really it was, uh, it didn't have the opportunity that it could have had. So that's kind of the advice I'd give people, whether VR or any other medical technology is working with technology and technology, it's a bit of a skill set. You need to kind of just have some basic understanding of what software is and how it works, which, which you do, Dr. Beanie, and that's why you, <laughs> you are like an evangelist for us all. And I think to take that seriously and, you know, make sure that the people that are making these decisions have the time and the experience to uh, make this stuff successful. And we don't have enough time to talk today, but I do think, especially in our field of orthopedics, that we need to make space and provide education around technology and, and integrate it more and not have to have like, you know, not everyone is Dr. Stefano Bini who can create these incredible roles and, and really forge the way for us all in academic medicine and beyond in healthcare. But, you know, we need to start thinking about how we can systematize kind of creating the next generation of technologists within healthcare. This last comment you made about integrating the education on digital technologies and uh, not just using them for the purpose of educating, but also to introduce the next generation of clinicians to the potential and power of these tools is a really great point, a great, great take home for all of us in the education space that Justin, thank you for that uh, reminder of the importance of that. Couple of last questions. Where can we find you? 
Yeah, you can you can find me on LinkedIn, Justin Barad. You can email me, Justin at OSOVR.com, or you can check out the website, OSSOVR.com. And Barad is B-A-R-A-D. Thank you for that. Justin Barad, absolutely, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. And um, what a great discussion. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain it to us. Thank you for having me and for all the amazing work you do. I hope you enjoyed our podcast, exploring the building blocks of digital health. If you liked what you heard, follow us on Twitter at dhealthtoday, that's dhealthtoday altogether, and follow the Digital Orthopedics Conference I chair at thedocsf, that's at the D-O-C-S-F. See you on the next episode of Digital Health 101 on Digital Health Today. What was this last round you guys just had? Uh, the 14 million. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's it's getting real. We're 83 people now. Did you get a COO or do you hire more C-suite people to help you out? We got a CFO and that's been definitely a game changer. Right. It's yeah. very helpful. Just I, now we have to do all these investor updates all the time. It's pretty crazy. That's right. That's right. Because uh, what's your investigation? Uh, we don't disclose it, but you can probably oh, I see. Okay. If you Google real hard. Yeah, yeah. If you Google real hard, somebody had to put it out there somewhere. Yeah, they, they're probably tracking me. You're probably right. Yeah, that's good. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly where is it going? He's got our money. Actually, I forgot to ask you about um, retinal projection. Do you think that's going to be anything in the near future? No, not in the near future. I mean, I think certainly a possibility, but that's kind of what Magic Leap originally was. And they weren't able to miniaturize the technology with like billions of dollars. So I just think it's going to take a while to figure out how to get that into a form factor where you can wear it on your head. Yeah, right, exactly. And you think, so how long did the new headsets, because in the past you could wear them for like an hour and that was pretty much it. Is it still about an hour? Um, I mean, I, it just depends, I guess. Like, I think these latest headsets are, you could have them on for hours if you wanted. It's just more like, you know, how long are people going to really spend in VR? So I think an hour is still probably like a healthy amount, but I've watched like full, like two feature length movies with people in VR and I, I, I didn't even realize I had a headset on, you know, once you're kind of like into it. So where is that world going? VR outside of healthcare in the gaming industry, probably still gaming. I can't imagine you gave that up. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean the the gaming aspect is it, it, like exploding. Like all of a sudden, like it's it's gotten huge. So like there are just innumerable gaming companies that have now broken the million dollar mark and multiple. Like Beat Saber has brought in something like forty million dollars last year, something crazy. So VR gaming is definitely here to stay. It just took a while. And then, you know, in terms of like serious applications, like outside of healthcare, it really is training that is kind of the biggest. And the only other companies that are really raising significant capital are, are in the training space. It's, it's just such an obvious, like ultra high value use case. Oh, yeah, it's so, so true. Also in AR, where they project stuff into the guy's field of view, like a technician that needs to see a diagram of uh, something he's working on, maybe, you know, the electrical side of it. Um, I'm uh, trying to see if the um, they need this stuff for training all these technicians around robotics, right? So you're working with some of these companies, I think. Others create. I think I could tell them to stop thinking about necessarily just a surgeon. You need to train your MPSs. You need to train your surgical. It takes them. It's such an expensive thing to train a, a rep. You know, they, they basically double them up for almost six months before they're ready to go on their own. Why? You know, because they got to see a few things which are unusual and they got to, why can't we do that in virtual reality? You know, like, hey, this didn't work. This broke. This happened. And just go through those experiences. See some cool stuff that way. Mm-hmm.